Hello, and welcome to Public Intellectual. Public Intellectual is a podcast that is supported solely by its listeners. So if you would like to contribute, please go to patreon.com slash public intellectual. We would like to thank our Patreon supporters, Jeffrey Dewey, Anna Clatworthy, Keith Vanderpool, and Austin Grossman. I fell down an internet hole looking up hybristophilia, which is the arousal or attraction for people who have committed an outrage. And by outrage, we're talking murder or rape. It's why serial killers get love letters in prison. And it's why violent men who are known abusers never seem to have a problem getting a date. But our whole culture seems to have a problem with hybristophilia, going right down to the story of Beauty and the Beast and the totally normal-seeming grown fucking women who think that the Disney movie is romantic and not a horror show. The reasons women give for writing love letters to serial killers, which has been studied as a phenomenon, are the same for Beauty Loving the Beast. Because only I can see the hurt little boy or the spark of goodness in this murderer or in this beast. Why are women attracted to violence and brutality? We could spend a whole podcast, years of it, trying to figure that out. Whether it's because violence is still an acceptable display of masculinity or whether it's that women are too detached from their own darkness, or whatever it is, it happens. And suddenly you're in love with this guy, and you find yourself trying to murder a woman and plant DNA on her body to help exonerate the love of your life and his appeals process. That's a real story we talk about in this podcast. Laura Elizabeth Woolett wrote a collection of short stories about this phenomenon called The Love of a Bad Man. Everyone from the mistress of Jim Jones to women who help their rapist husband find new victims get their stories told. And so she and I discuss these women and the fairy tales and the misogynistic culture that helps to create them. This book is all about, um, you know, as it says in the title, women who love bad men, but specifically this kind of hold that um, violent men and brutal men have over women in our culture. Um, And so I'm just wondering what it is, not necessarily about you, but what is it that, um, that drew you to the subject? Well, I, I guess I count myself lucky in that I've never actually dated a bad guy um, ever. But I think um, from the time I began reading books featuring these characters, they always had a fascination for me. And um, I do remember when I was about 16 years old, I had um, quite an intense Ayn Rand phase. It only lasted a couple of months. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, and basically her books have these men in them who are, um, you know, presented as morally superior because of their selfishness and because 
they're willing to go to any lengths to, you know, get what they want. Um, and her, like, her most famous book, I guess, is Atlas Shrugged. And um, the, the protagonist is this woman who is, you know, beautiful and smart. And um, she has three men kind of falling in love with her through the course of the book. And each one is um, progressively more kind of, Rangian than the next and um yeah and I at you know that age I was just like wow cool this is like my fantasy almost and um you know she she does actually really tap into those romance novel cliches about you know women being conquered by um men who are you know a bit wild and a bit untamable um so an interesting thing that I learned recently was that Ayn Rand herself, um, the author, had this weird fascination with um, a murderer in the 1920s. And she didn't go as far as, like, writing to him when he was in prison or anything, but um, she did write about him. And um, basically he was a 19-year-old guy, um, quite lower class, and... Um, his name was William Edward Hickman. And um, in 1928, he abducted the 12-year-old daughter of um, a rich banker and, you know, sent this man um, a letter saying that, you know, if you give me this much money, I'll return your daughter safely. Um, so the, the father came and met him and um, saw his daughter sitting up in the car and was like okay she's safe and um Hickman you know took the ransom money got back in the car pushed the daughter out of the car and it turned out um she had actually been dead for 12 hours and dismembered and disemboweled um so it was you know this hugely violent murder and um Hickman had no intention of returning the girl safely but he also wanted to get the ransom money. So it was a totally, um, you know, exploitative crime. Um, and Rand actually, you know, wrote in her notes that um, she admired this man because he had, you know, no regard whatsoever for um, everything that society holds sacred. And she said that, you know, he had a consciousness of his own, um, the true psychology of a superman and she even called him a beautiful soul so like her, yeah her notes really reminded me of um just those women who you know do do become fascinated by men in prison and um excusing their crimes because they you know see something in this man and it's just pretty crazy so um yeah, the the sort of romance novel illusion that you make is really interesting um, because it is it is that same that same dynamic or that same setup of the woman being um, sort of virginal in some way and it's so it has to be taken um, and I I remember reading Ayn Rand in high school in the way that every you know all sort of like self involved teenagers read. I ran in high school because they want somebody to tell them that they're super special and they can do whatever they want. Right. Um, but um, 
I don't, I had no recognition in any of this sort of really problematic sex scenes that rape was happening. Um, and I don't remember how old I was until, until I did figure that out, but there's so much, um, rape slash not rape in romance novels. Um, which I read as well, you know, at 13 years old, passing around sort of um, old paperbacks with dog ears at the at the good parts. <laughs> um, I don't know if you have a sort of like similar um, coming of age in, into literature of V.C. Andrews slash Harlequin romance novels. Yeah, I did, I did do V.C. Andrews as well. Um, I think I actually read her slightly after Ayn Rand so it wasn't you know a logical progression in any way but yeah <laughs> yeah it's slightly like more it's it's the intellectual harlequin romance of of our era um but yeah let's talk about some of the sort of specific women that you write about um because it is quite a range of figures um some of whom I had heard about and some of whom I had not um I think that there's um uh there are a couple that are sort of um specific to regions america doesn't really i hadn't really heard that much of um, myra hinley um and uh and so on but even some of the ones that did happen in america like veronica compton um i had never heard of before and she's fascinating and i really want a super trashy movie about her now but um I was wondering if you could tell her story a little bit well yeah I don't know if the movie would happen like she would have to be on board because she's actually you know out of prison and um living out in the world somewhere so I think yeah it would definitely have to have her approval if something like that happened but um yeah she was this woman who um she was from a wealthy Los Angeles family. I think her dad was a newspaper cartoonist. I don't know whose name, but um, yeah. And she basically grew up, you know, in quite a Hollywood um, sort of scene. You know, she had like affairs with her father's business partners and stuff like that. And she got pregnant at quite a young age and um, had the child. And then at the age of 23, um, she was kind of, living quite an artistic lifestyle and just wanted to be an actress, wanted to be a playwright, wanted to be um, a painter, all, all these things. Um, but she decided she wanted to write a play about um, a female serial killer. And um, she wrote to Ke Kenneth Bianchi, who was um, one half of the Hillside Stranglers serial killing duo. And um was like, oh, you know, your crimes are whatever, fascinating to me. Um, I want to know more about, you know, the psychology of a serial killer. And she started writing to him and bombarding him with letters. And at first he didn't answer her. But then they actually began a relationship through letters and she visited him in prison. Um, and he convinced her because his case hadn't, I don't think it had gone to trial yet, um, he convinced her to um, commit a copycat murder um, so it would look like he was innocent. And so, you know, she went as far as um, attempting to strangle another woman. The woman got away um, and 
Compton got imprisoned for the attempt and ended up spending about 20 years in jail herself. Um, but an interesting thing is that while, while she was in prison, she actually began through letters again, um, a relationship with another imprisoned serial killer. Um, <laughs> he was, I think he was um, the Sunset Strip killer. And he was actually a man who, um, I didn't write about this couple in my book, but he also killed with his partner, um, Carol Bundy. And um, no, no relation to Ted. But yeah, so he, he was one of those men who works with women and you know, when Veronica started writing to him, he was like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's just it's very strange. And, you know, she's out of prison now and um, claims to have been reformed and, you know, says a lot of her problems were to do with drugs and, you know, undiagnosed mental illness. Um, so hopefully, you know, she, she's turned around, but... No way of knowing, I guess. Yeah, um, it does seem to be a kind of um, a typical justification or um, excuse for what happened with, with the kind of like, well, it was the, it was the guy, right? Like I fell in love with this guy, and uh, all of a sudden I found myself <laughs> strangling a woman. <laughs> somehow um but now that I'm away from him I'm fine um is, is that kind of like a a, a common reaction and uh, you know how how sold are you on on that reasoning I mean I think it, it varies from case to case like there were stories in my book where I did feel like the woman was kind of came from a background where she didn't have those defenses and where she was more susceptible but for others, I did feel like it was a bit more of an excuse. Um, but, yeah, you know, I, I guess um, one case in particular was um, Carla Homolka and uh, Paul Bernardo, the Ken and Barbie serial killers. I'm not sure how famous they are in America, but they were a Canadian couple. And um, they actually, their first murder was Carla's younger sister. And um, then they went on to, to kill two schoolgirls who were both about 15 years old um and you know Carla claimed to have been abused and um you know Paul was violent towards her but um she went to the police and got you know uh um what they call a sweetheart deal which is where you know the woman gets a lighter sentence if she tes testifies against the man um and so she only got 12 years in prison but then, um, you know, evidence was actually uncovered, videotapes um, of them, you know, both, like, sexually assaulting their victims. Um, so she was actually, you know, highly involved in everything. And um, Bernardo was actually a serial rapist um, before he met Carla, but it was only once they got together that um, the murders started happening. So... Yeah, hers is definitely one of those cases where she did have quite an active role in things, but um, she was able to use, you know, her position as a woman to get a better deal than him, and he's, you know, in prison for life. Um, yeah, so 
but there, there were other cases where, um, for instance, Carol Fugate, um, she was only 14 years old, um, and this was a case that happened in Nebraska in the 1950s, and um, she had an older boyfriend who um, took her along on a killing spree. She didn't actually participate in the murders, but she was with him the whole way. And she actually got a much harsher sentence and um, was able to get parole eventually. But, you know, initially she was in prison for life. So um, I guess there was a difference in attitudes at that time as well to women and violence. Do you think that there's a difference between how in our culture sort of violent men are written about and violent women are written about? I I do feel like whenever I see a kind of um, woman murderer movie or TV show or whatever, the there's so much emphasis on what she had overcome or what she had suffered as far as trauma or abuse and, and so on and so forth. Um, that makes it sort of more sympathetic uh, in some way. And I'm kind of just thinking of the movie Monster here. Um, whereas men are sort of um, presented, especially murderers, tend to be presented as very charismatic and very um, almost like the evil genius archetype. Um, like Hannibal Lecter and, and so on and so forth. So kind of sophisticated, kind of suave, um, magnetic, um, without the sort of backstory. Do you think that that's still something that we're caught up in as far as like maybe it's just that we're skeptical that women are as evil as men and so we need some sort of um, framework within it to understand it? Yeah, I think there's a couple of different directions that people like to take women who, you know, commit acts of violence. And usually it's either that she's, you know, somehow monstrous or that she's, you know, a broken sort of woman who has been abused and, um, you know, was made into a monster. Or occasionally you also get the femme fatale, you know, this, like, unrealistically sexy kind of woman who you know, is a bit of a vampire and, you know, commits these acts. But I think that that is a bit less common. Um, but I, I do feel like there are beginning to be a few more variations um, or I guess like interest in um, women who, you know, do these things and who don't necessarily fit one of those categories. But um, it, it's coming a bit more slowly, I think, so... And it's not just sort of like um, the partners of serial killers in your book. You also you also have uh, Ava Brown, um, the mistress of, of uh, Hitler, and, and um, some other sort of figures like that. Um, so so the types of evil is is kind of varied. Um, but um, with somebody like her. You know, I remember there was this huge scandal in Germany um, when I was living there because there was a biography about her um, and she was sort of rejected as even as even being a figure worth studying, like, that she she was somehow so evil, almost um, equal to Hitler himself, um, because either she had to know what was going on and um, was still in love with him anyway, um, or she was just sort of uh, an idiot 
and um, uh, and so somehow I guess has is worthy of blame in that way um, because she was ignoring what was obviously going on around her. Um, but I was just sort of wondering how you, um, because she's not somebody who's humanized very often. Um, how did you find sort of the humanity in somebody like Eva Brown? Well, I actually found her to be one of the easier people to write about because she, yeah, like you said, didn't really take an active role. Like her, her, um, Crime was more one of blindness and being passive and just, you know, turning a blind eye to everything that was going on. Um, but I feel like, you know, she was a very typical middle-class German girl. Um, she met Hitler when she was about 19, straight out of school, I guess. And, um, Oh, actually 17, and then she began her relationship with him when she was 19. Um, and, you know, to her, he was um, just this older man who came into her workplace and was very nice to her and gave her presents and compliments and everything. And, um, you know, she learned that he was powerful, and I guess that was attractive to her. But also, at that time in Germany, Hitler was... Um, attractive to a lot of women and it's strange to think about but yeah um and basically um I don't know I I think yeah there is definitely a level of culpability there you know and her family um weren't supporters of Hitler initially her dad um you know really didn't like him and didn't like that she was having a relationship with him um, and her sister, her older sister, um, you know, worked for a Jewish man and was, you know, again, not, not sympathetic to what he, what Hitler represented, but, um, you know, over the years, the family and as things changed in Germany, you know, her father joined the Nazi party just because it was the easy thing to do. And, um, you know, her sister, um, you know, didn't rebel in any kind of open or significant way. So I think a lot of people just went along with things. Um, but yeah, I feel like Eva, you know, she, it's pretty um, strange and horrible to think about, you know, while everything was going on, while the war was going on, you know, she was just living this lifestyle that was mostly about shopping and, um, going to ski resorts and yeah having this quite luxurious lifestyle so I kind of see her as more of a Melania sort of figure you know she's not actively you know going along with evil or committing acts of evil but her silence is something that um is morally questionable and um especially when she is so close to someone in power yeah do you find melania interesting i kind of keep going back and forth around whether or not she's an interesting figure or not i i don't find her interesting enough to write about but i think if someone else did i would definitely read it um yeah she's someone that i i just i do wonder about her inner life and what she's actually thinking but 
yeah, she, I don't know. I, I do feel like she's, it's hard to say. Like, she doesn't seem like a complex sort of person necessarily. I, I feel like she just kind of is in a situation that she doesn't necessarily like, but she also isn't willing to jeopardise what she has. And, yeah, I don't think she has concern for people who are suffering or anything like that. And, you know, she's not someone who's using her role for good. Yeah, Trump is sort of a um, an interesting kind of illustration of what we're talking about because there's been sort of allegations for years about him. Um, uh, you know, he's had an ex-wife accuse him in print of being a rapist. Um, there have been rumors about him assaulting women for a very long time, and yet he doesn't seem to have trouble getting married and finding his spouse, right? He's yeah. always... He's always got um, a, a romantic partner and mistresses and prostitutes and who knows what else. Um, there's an, a, you know, a story came out today about a, about a porn star he was involved with. And, and it's just like, come on, ladies. <laughs> what do we yeah. have to do <laughs> to get everybody on the same page? I was like, this, this is not, this is not, please stop doing this. Please, please let th- this kind of guy go. Yeah. Um, but with the Trump thing is like, is this kind of, um, uh, that big question of why so many women even voted for Trump? Um, why a majority of white women voted for Trump? Um, why they didn't see, um, the allegations of assault and, and so on of being a deal breaker in some ways that almost made him more enticing. Yeah. And I think. I don't know. It's it's one of those things where um, I feel like, yeah, white women can sometimes go either way and it's, you know, you have the choice of kind of aligning yourself with, um, you know, white male power um, and getting the benefits of being close to that or kind of fighting against that, um, which can be more of a difficult road to take I guess for some people and um I guess especially in places with you know a white majority in you know those states kind of in the middle of America um I guess you know the former option would seem like the most logical thing to do um I don't know it's a hard thing to get your head around but like obviously I think what was it 51 percent or something. 53, um, 53%. Yeah, and it's just horrible to think about. Um, but it, it was obviously, you know, a lot of women did feel like they, you know, that was the more beneficial road for them to take for whatever reason. Yeah, it, and it is funny because I think it is really kind of ingrained in girls and women in our culture sort of going back to the sort of, you know, the Harlequin romance um, idea of what romance looks like. Um, and even in conversations with um, the sort of Me Too movement where women are saying online that they're worried that if we take uh, if we start regulating against harassment and, and so on, 
then we're going to destroy romance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, which is, that's my favorite um, idea. But, um, but it is like so much of our idea of what is romantic is, is male domination. Um, mm-hmm. And it's sort of, I think, epitomized in these, um, in these killers, because who has more power than somebody who has the power over life and death, you know? Yeah. And I think, um, like, I don't know, the, the women who fall in love with these men, I think at the center of it, sometimes there is this idea of the, you know, ultimate alpha male, you know, because as long as this man isn't turning his violence against you, then, um, if you stay on his sweet side, you're going to be protected. You're going to be, um, you know, with a man who is capable of killing and killing for you. Um, and it's, I guess it ties into all those ideas about, you know, what men should be, um, you know, dominant and assertive and capable of hunting and, um, defending and, um, yeah, you know, men who take action rather than communicating. And um, so I think it, it um, yeah, the serial killer definitely represents a man who is, you know, in some ways ultra-masculine and it's quite a fucked up idea, but it's there, I think. Yeah, I, d- I do too. And, and I also, I think, um, an interesting aspect of this is is what the woman gets out of it in the sense of like she gets to be special right because she she's not murdered by the guy <laughs> yeah like she is the one who's protected and has this place which is I guess supposedly untouchable but the thing is you know they, these men um, generally are you know violent or abusive if not physically than, um, you know, verbally or emotionally with these um, women who they are in relationships with. But it's, yeah, I mean, you, you don't necessarily stay safe if you're with one of these men. Right. Um, and I was kind of thinking about this with um, the Ava Brown chapter um, in the sense of there's so much in our culture that is about... Um, uh, the the power of a woman's love, right? To and it's in all of all the goddamn fairy tales. Um, the woman kisses the frog, he turns into a prince. The woman, um, falls in love with the beast, he turns into a prince. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's about the transformative power of what of what women can do because they can't, you know, fight wars or, um, rule countries or whatever. So all that all they get stuck with is uh, loving and kissing. Um. But how much we of ourselves we sort of invest in this idea of who we love or whatever or how we love um, makes us special. And with the Ava Brown chapter in particular, like how it kind of relates to the rise of the Nazis in America right now, um, of how people talk about those men um, that show up at the rallies as being... Uh, sexually they must be sexually frustrated you know look at all these virgins all that kind of talk um which it kind of ignores the fact that women have always been um super into nazis (laughs) 
Um, but also super into white supremacy movements. Um, they've also been very attracted to these sort of white power um, uh, movements and being uh, participants within it and supportive of it. And so this idea that it's just all these men, all they really need is the love of a good woman and they will be restored back into some sort of human form and stop uh, carrying tiki torches down the street. Yeah, and I, I think, um, you know, what, what, whatever movement you're looking at, whether it's, you know, white supremacy or um, socialism, you know, there's always women, you know, behind the men who are, um, you know, espousing these ideals. And I think um, women can be just as fanatical as men and um, women join movements too, you know, it's, it's not always just men. Um, and yeah, I, I, um, in, in my research into, um, Jonestown and People's Temple, I came across this quote by, um, a woman called Mary Marga. And she was writing about, um, the women in People's Temple who were, um, I guess the closest people to Jim Jones and the ones in the church with the most power, um, besides him. And, um, yeah, she said that a woman is more loyal to the cause to which she has committed and more extreme in demonstrating her loyalty because of the greater sacrifice she has made in joining the group combined with a need to prove she is not less willing to be violent or to suffer deprivation because she is female. Um, so yeah, basically she's saying that, you know, when women do join these movements, sometimes, um, there is a need to prove that they aren't soft and that they actually, um, you know, are willing to fight and to commit themselves. Um, but it, it, it is something that you don't see that much when you're looking at, um, you know, like you said, the, um, footage of the Trump rallies and that sort of thing. There's not really any focus on the women, but I, I do think they are there. Yeah. They're de I mean, I, there, there was some sort of news report or um, of historical documents sort of unearthed about the, um, about women in uh, the third Reich who were um, part of death squads, like going around rounding up Jews and shooting and shooting them in the head. And, and it, I think in the sort of similar way that she was talking about of being needing to prove themselves, like, look, I can be um, as sort of like macho or monstrous as any of you guys. Um, I too can be um, super violent and, and take things to extremes. Um, yeah. I, Anytime anybody tries to tell me that women are more compassionate than men, I'm just like, you have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the idea of empathy, I guess, and like women being, um, you know, more empathetic than men. I mean, I, I don't really necessarily think it's um, a thing where it's, you know, ingrained. I think... Um, it varies from person to person and some men are more empathetic, some women are. Um, but I think it's a difference between how we're socialized and, you know, if a woman doesn't demonstrate empathy and um, 
is more antisocial in her behaviour, it's more likely to be criticised at an early age than if a, a boy, you know, shows that kind of character. And I guess it, it is, you know, sometimes more of a learned thing than people give it credit for. Um, yeah, and I think, I think um, it goes back to how, you know, the women... Um, in these serial killer couples are um, often, you know, treated differently once they get to trial than the men. Um, you know, there is this assumption that a woman is more empathetic and compassionate and wouldn't do these things if she wasn't under the pressure. Um, but I, I do wonder about it because I do think that it is definitely a thing that varies from person to person rather than, you know, one gender is more compassionate than the other. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I want to talk about Jonestown because I know you're writing, um, you wrote a, a story in this book, but um, you're sort of expanding um, into a whole novel about Jonestown. <laughs> um and I've been obsessed with Jonestown ever since I watched, I think, the HBO movie at a much too young age. <laughs> um, and I, I've spent way too much of my time reading 800-page books and watching 10-hour documentaries about Jonestown. I find it so fascinating. Um, so you uh, write about the women who are involved, um, Jim Jones's um, mistress and his wife. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, the roles that these two different women played within the within the church? Yeah, sure. Um, so my, my next book, um, it's actually coming out later this year. It's called Beautiful Revolutionary. And it, um, it focuses mostly on the woman or a fictional version of her, um, who was Jones's mistress for 10 years. But his wife was a woman called Marceline Jones, or Marceline Baldwin, before she married him. Um, and they met at a really young age. He was actually younger than her when they met. Um, and he was 18 and she was 21 when they married. Um, and she was a nurse and from a nice family and... Um, you know, everyone who knew her, even to this day, um, you know, describes her as someone who was a genuinely kind person and um, someone who was easy to talk to and to go to, um, to go to if you had a problem, you know, and you didn't feel comfortable approaching Jim Jones. Um, and she played this role within the church um, where Jim Jones had people calling him father and she was mother. So um, she really represented this kind of nurturing force within people's temple. And, um, you know, she had children with Jim Jones. Um, most of them were adopted, but she, she was seen basically as the mother figure within the church to, you know, all the children and all the people. Um, whereas his mistress, uh, Carolyn Layton, she um, came along in the late 1960s and um, Jones had been married for almost 20 years, I think, when, when he met Carolyn. And um, they started an, an affair and basically it continued, um, you know, 
until the end of both their lives. And, but it, it was kept secret from a lot of people within the church. And she had this role, which was completely different to his wife, um, where she was kind of the chief secretary. Um, she was more of an administrator, a planner, um, you know, everything behind the scenes, a lot of things went through her and she had a lot of power. Um, and in a lot of way, a lot of ways, more power than Marceline had, you know, she was, um, Carolyn was actually, you know, more involved, I think, in, um, the planning for the Jonestown massacre than, whereas Marceline, um, I think always argued against it when, when the idea of, um, they called it revolutionary suicide was brought up. Um, yeah, so these two very different women, but at the same time, they were both, um, powerful within the church. They both, you know, supported Jim Jones in different ways. And, um, they were both also, you know, people who were, um, political, who had social consciences and, um, who were just really committed to the church in their own way. So, um, yeah, but ultimately they both kind of did, um, contribute to other people believing in Jim Jones because their support kind of gave him more power. Um, is there, is there something in particular that you find compelling about Jonestown? I mean, I, I don't have any worries that I will ever fall in love with a serial killer, but I do think that I'm susceptible to cults. <laughs> um, because what I sort of read about Jonestown and, and, and the beginning stages of it, a lot of what he was preaching made sense as far as sort of um, a, uh, you know, c civil rights. Um, he, w he was big on civil rights. He was big on sort of uh, environmental sustainability. I could definitely see myself falling under the sway of somebody, <laughs> um, to a group like that that felt like a big family and all that kind of stuff. Like that's, I, f I worry about that. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I've heard it said that, you know, if Jim Jones died in 1970 or something, he would have gone down in history as a really good guy. And, you know, he was involved, um, like his church started in Indiana in the 1950s and he helped to integrate, um, you know, a lot of businesses there and he was really vocal in um supporting civil rights at that time when a lot of people weren't. And in a state, you know, Indiana has quite a big history with being a, a um, clan state and had a lot going on there. Um, and so, he, you know, he did a lot of good things and the people who followed him were people who believed in the same things. And so he actually, he attracted, you know, a different kind of following of people than, um, you know, he's often compared with Charles Manson, but Manson was, you know, more about just sex and drugs and rock and roll, you know, all that stuff. Um, but, yeah, you know, the people in People's Temple were actually really trying to make a better world and believing in it. And, um, you know, Jim Jones himself, 
it's arguable, you know, how much of um, how bad he ultimately became was to do with drugs and how much of it was his, you know, personality from the beginning. But um, definitely the people around him, you know, there were good people and um, who kind of accepted things and um, as things became crazier, kind of made justifications for that. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.